Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on today's show is William Vogley. Bill is a senior editor of the Claremont Review of Books and the author of two, two books himself, Never Enough, America's Limitless Welfare State, and The Pity Party, a mean-spirited diatribe against liberal compassion. He's contributed essays to City Journal for over a decade now, and we're glad he can join us on the podcast. His latest piece for the magazine, which appears in our autumn 2020 issue, is called The Truth About White Flight. Bill also wrote a piece for us in the aftermath of the events of last week in Capitol Hill, or a couple of weeks ago now, actually, called About Whataboutism. It's a brilliant piece. I encourage you to check it out, and we'll be sure to talk about it here a bit on the podcast. Uh, Bill, thanks very much for joining us, and always good to talk with you. Good to be with you, Brian. Your piece from the magazine, uh, The Truth About White Flight Essay, begins with former First Lady Michelle Obama, who had published a best-selling memoir a couple of years ago. Mrs. Obama, who was born uh, Michelle Robinson, grew up on the south shore of Chicago in a neighborhood that came to typify uh, the urban white flight experience. In 1950, the South Shore was basically 90, 95-96% white. Over just a few decades, the demographics completely flipped, and the neighborhood was 96% black by the time the early 80s rolled around. Now, according to the firm, former First Lady, and this is a, a common charge by progressives um, as well, the motivation behind this demographic shift, this white flight from cities, was was clear or is clear and obvious that racism was behind the relocation, uh, leaving behind devastated black communities and taking a lot of the funding and money that circulated in these neighborhoods to the suburbs. Uh, your piece says that that doesn't really reflect the entire story, and it's too simple uh, an argument. Could you could you elaborate a bit on what about this white flight narrative you disagree with? Yes, I think it's uh, oversimplified, um, too prosecutorial, doesn't do justice to the um, uh, underlying uh, realities and facts. I think people who have looked at the phenomenon more closely have uh, argued persuasively that there were pull factors and push factors that were not uh, closely tied to race. The pull factors were the, uh, the the desire for lower density living, to move out of apartments and maybe get a single family uh, dwelling. Um, the push factors above all uh, was uh, the rise in crime, uh, which was a problem in South Shore, a problem in other Chicago neighborhoods that went through the same overwhelmingly white to overwhelmingly black transition over the course of a couple of decades, and a problem in such neighborhoods and towns all around the country. By the 80s, um, serious felonies were in Michelle Robinson's, Michelle Obama's old neighborhood being committed at rates something like three times the Chicago average, right? So this became one of one of the city's most dangerous neighborhoods. In your essay, you have some extremely vivid stories from residents and former residents, which which really 
underscore your argument that this wasn't just about race, really. It was more about uh, fear and, and some of the push factors as well as the pull factors. Could you explain a little bit more about some of those dynamics? And, and indeed, now there's this phenomenon of black flight from some of these same neighborhoods, correct? Yes, that's right. Um, a, um, a liberal um, journalist uh, professor, uh, Carla Rotella, um, provided a great deal of the material that, um, uh, that I relied on for my essay. He wrote a book um, that came out in 2019 uh, about growing up in uh, South Shore. He is uh, uh, Spanish and Italian by ancestry. Uh, he was um, born the same year as Michelle Obama, Michelle Robinson, 1964. He had um, the experience then of growing up in the neighborhood as it was going from predominantly white to, uh, as you say, sort of vestigially white uh, after 20 years. Um, he, he's sympathetic, I think, to, uh, to uh, Mrs. Obama's political argument, or at least her orientation, but he he makes what uh, I think a lawyer would call uh, admissions against interest. He says that people really were terrified and disgusted by the violence going on there, that, that various people uh, that he knew growing up uh, were families that had um, uh, sort of this is enough moment, uh, being held up, having their home broken into, um, being assaulted on the street. Uh, he says for many families there was... Um, the, the fatal shooting of the owner of a toy store who had been a beloved figure in the neighborhood for um, many, many years, after which a good number of people said, we just can't live here anymore. This, is, this tears it for us. Um, so I, I think it was these considerations wind up being um, completely removed from the, uh, the, the field of discussion by the analysis that Michelle Obama and other people who uh, emphasize that the theory that white flight is simply, solely, and entirely a function of white racism. Well, now you've got a, a different argument being made that when um, wealthy, or not even necessarily wealthy, when when just uh, white younger people are moving back into some of these. Of former neighborhoods um, that their grandparents might have lived in, um, mm -hmm. they're being viewed as interlopers, and that this becomes a kind of racism as well, because it, it at least as far as the theory goes, it drives gentrification. So the question becomes: All right, tell me the non-racist way and place to live. If these are the, um, if if these criticisms taken together sort of define the, um, the alternatives. If it's racist to move out of the city because, um, uh, or a neighborhood because black families are moving there, and it's racist to move back into the city, into a neighborhood where blacks are the majority, um, what do we want white uh, people to do when they're making a, a choice about location that um, is, is completely absolves them of any susceptibility to the accusation that they're racist? Yeah, it really is a kind of double bind, and you know we've we've published uh, quite a bit on this theme about gentrification and how it too is a is a far more complex uh, phenomenon than people, um, you, you, you know, at least progressives tend to describe it as being, and in fact that 
uh, gentrification does intend to create uh, all that much displacement that many of the residents who are there uh, who own property already benefit from the rise in property values that it results in an injection of you know more job opportunities into some of these neighborhoods so it's it's um, you know again I guess the the point would be that these these uh, shifts in demography and in the success of neighborhoods tend to be uh, far more complex than the usual public narratives about these changes uh, capture. I think that's right. And I, I think also um, there have been some interesting studies on um, uh, suggesting that, that the tensions over uh, gentrification are much more sort of um, sociological than economic. Um, in Washington, D.C., for example, um, extensive zoning and, and various public programs have tried very hard to make sure that the ongoing gentrification does not displace or price out um, people who have lived in neighborhoods for a long time. And that has been, um, in, in terms of its immediate objectives, it has been successful. But in terms of the um, sort of broader goal of getting people of different races to live together amiably and comfortably, uh, that's, that's proven to be a much harder thing. One sociologist who studied the, the District of Columbia said you have, it's, it's what, you, what you have is sort of like micro-segregation. You have a white community and a black community that occupy the same neighborhood, but otherwise have very limited and very sort of wary, apprehensive interactions with one another. It's fascinating. Well, the piece was, again, quite terrific. I encourage our listeners uh, to go back and read it. It's in our autumn issue, uh, and it's called The the Truth About White Flight. It's a, it's a very nuanced and uh, quite, quite uh, impressive essay. Uh, at the top of the show, I mentioned this piece you've just done for us called About Whataboutism. Um, this was on the the mob uh, assault on the Capitol, you know, on Capitol Hill um, recently, and uh, which, you know, was very upsetting for, for many Americans, if not most Americans. And it's something we've edit editorialized several times on. Uh, your piece really focuses on um, this phenomenon of whataboutism. And I wonder if you could just talk about that a little bit and you know, emphasize uh, the main point of your piece, which is to show there is there has been an extraordinary hypocrisy on the part of some Democrats and and their allies in the press and media about different kinds of riots. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, I, I would say that if um, uh, if uh, six months ago, uh, after the George Floyd death in Minneapolis, if you were a politician or a commentator who was very sympathetic to the political views and objectives of Black Lives Matter. But nevertheless, you said, categorically, rioting, looting, arson, the things that, that people can see happening on their television screens every night over the summer of 2020, categorically, these things are wrong. Then you are in a very strong position to look at what happened on Capitol Hill um, now just a little over a week ago and say, this, this is equally and fully wrong. 
If, however, uh, you spent the summer of 2020 sort of apologizing for or providing context or saying uh, there were extenuating circumstances and we shouldn't really be too harsh to judge the um, <clears throat> people who set police stations and courthouses ablaze and that kind of thing, um, then it's, it's, a, it's a much dicier proposition to suddenly say now, ah, what happened on Capitol Hill is an outrage. Um, if you keep the standards clear and simple, then these judgments get easier. If you are situational as a commentator, as an evaluator of what's going on in the world, when it suits you, then it becomes more difficult. And what my, um, my recent um, uh, website piece said is that <clears throat> critics of conservatives who uh, accuse them of whataboutism to try to resolve this tension um, are not really carrying the, uh, the, the argument forward very well. Um, these things are, in fact, comparable in the sense that they both violate the very basic idea that we should uphold law and order, democracy, respect for other people's uh, persons and property, and uh, trying to sort of memory hole all of these crazy things that people said and did a mere six months ago just isn't going to wash. Yes, it's it's uh, it's encouraging, I guess, to see uh, folks like Nancy Pelosi rediscovering the importance of rule of law. But one wonders if uh, she will apply that uh, concern, and, and other progressives and figures in the media uh, apply that concern um, equally, those principles equally across uh, rioting of all kinds, which uh, we've you know long opposed at City Journal. Uh, as as truly one of the worst things that can happen, this this breakdown in civil order. Uh, thanks very much, Bill. Don't forget to check out uh, William Vogley's work. It's on our website, uh, www.city-journal.org. We'll link to his author page and his recent work in the podcast description. As I had mentioned earlier, he's he's been writing for the magazine for, for a decade now and has many terrific pieces. Uh, you can follow City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. And if you do like what you've heard on the podcast, please leave us a ratings on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and thanks very much, Bill, for joining us. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.